Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 73, The Three Princesses, a tale of Egypt, Syria, and the world of the Egyptian Empire. This episode is brought to you by Brenda Wass, a regular supporter, Florian Schneithman, and Simon Oliphant. I have to say, Schneithman and Oliphant are some excellent last names. Color me envious. Welcome back. Today, we return to the historical narrative of Thutmose III's mighty reign. We've had a couple of episodes of side stories, and that has been fantastic, but we can't stay away too long. The world of politics and military affairs is simply too important to this period to ignore. For those of you who prefer the side stories, those domestic and internal affairs, don't worry, I have a lot of that coming up. Let me recap where we left off back in episode 70. At the end of regnal year 33, approximately 1462 BCE, Thutmose III had pulled off one of his most impressive achievements to date. He had launched a massive surprise attack against his most dangerous foe. Crossing the river Euphrates in Syria, Thutmose had struck at the heartland of the kingdom of Mitanni. He had laid waste their farmlands and communities, fought at least one battle against a local army, and then driven the Mitanni off in defeat. He had erected a stela to his victory, taken a hunting trip in Syria, and then returned back to Egypt in triumph. Now, at the beginning of regnal year 34, the king was riding high. Tribute and revenue were beginning to flow into Egypt from its vassals. More on that in a moment and the army was rich in plunder from its campaigns. The temples of the land were being embellished and expanded, the king's monuments were well underway, and life in the palaces was comfortable and prosperous. The king's court was in a good mood as regnal year 34 began. As of 1461 BCE, Thutmose was looking ahead once more. In a month or two, he would return to Syria for a short campaign, his ninth, and then he would return home. Syria was quiet this year. The Mitanni were still licking their wounds. As Thutmose and his warriors visited Syria again, they were really just doing a bit of policing action. The ninth campaign is almost a non-event in the historical record. We hardly hear about it, and Thutmose never makes any big deal about its events. It was a quiet moment between the massive campaign of Ragnar year 33 and the big events that were on the horizon. And there were some serious changes on the horizon. As Egypt left its traditional isolation and asserted itself in the world, 
it was inevitable that other powers would notice what was happening. Tutmos took what he wanted from the Mitanni. You don't tend to do that without stirring the pot just a little bit. So let's open today's story with a look at how the world and its political powers responded to the magnificent onslaught of the Egyptian army. Many rulers, you see, watched the Mitanni campaign with interest. Some of them watched with alarm. Evidently, the message of Egypt's imperial power had travelled much further than the kingdom of the Mitanni. It had reached the towns of Syria and Canaan, of course. How could it not? Those cities, Aleppo, Alalak, Ugarit, Tunip, Kadesh, Byblos, etc., were all very familiar with Egyptian military activities. Some of them had watched from the sidelines as Tutmos did his thing. Others had been locked in power struggles with the Egyptian army for years. And many more, the vast majority, had been subjugated or submitted to the rising power of the pharaoh of Egypt. Naturally, word of pharaoh's power began to spread further than these lands. First it went eastward, across the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, into modern Iraq and Kurdistan. Secondly, it went south, into southern Iraq, the lands which we call Babylonia. Finally, it went northward, into the Taurus Mountains of central Anatolia, or Turkey. A few months after he finished his campaign against the Mitanni, Tutmos, sitting at home in the royal palace, suddenly started to receive a series of most unexpected guests. Groups of men wearing strange clothing and speaking foreign languages began to appear at the Egyptian court. They were seeking audience with none other than the great majesty of the pharaoh himself. These men came as embassies, delegations. They came from far and wide, and they had come as a direct result of Tutmos's audacious and impressive campaigning up in Syria and northern Iraq. These men came from the Near East's most formidable kingdoms, and they came to Egypt in order to offer the very best thing they could their friendship. The first delegation came from the lands of Babylonia, which I mentioned a moment ago. Babylonia is, well, it's located in southern Iraq, and it centres on the city of Babylon. Babylon is a ruin today, south of Baghdad, but it was once the mightiest city in the world. Babylon, home to ruling dynasties from the early Bronze Age down to Alexander the Great. Babylon, centre of the first great empire in history. Babylon, which some call a mark of apocalypse, a herald of religious destruction. Well, Babylon was not a bad place, at least not broadly speaking. I'm sure it had its problems, but overall it was a relatively accomplished and progressive city by ancient standards. In an age of almost universal autocracy, the Babylonians had codified one of the world's earliest legal documents, the Code of Hammurabi. Babylon itself had once been one of the largest cities in the world, a shining example of what early agricultural civilization could offer to humankind. In the days of Tutmos III, Babylon was far past its zenith, unfortunately. The kingdom had weakened over the centuries, until its traditional royal household collapsed, and the lands were taken over by a new ruling class. These were a people known as the Kassites, and they came from the Far East. The Kassites were Indo-Europeans, and as such they were more than familiar with the kingdom of Mitanni. 
they were hardly on good terms with the Mitanni either, which is why the King of Babylon responded to Thutmose III's campaigns with, well, enthusiasm. The King of Babylon at this time was a man named Kara Indash, and I have to say, his titles were pretty cool. Quote, Kara Indash, mighty king, king of Babylonia, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the Kassites, king of Kaduniash. One of those king of kings types that crops up in eastern empires a lot. Kara Indash, king of Babylon, opened relations with Tutmose III, the way that most ancient kingdoms did so. He sent the pharaoh of Egypt a formal diplomatic gift in the hands of his ambassadors. The ambassadors would offer a message of goodwill to the king of the Nile Valley, the suzerain of Canaan, the one who had vanquished the hated Mitanni. Kara Indash sent to Tutmose III a gift of semi-precious stones, a rare mineral that only came from the mountains far to the east. He sent a gift of lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a blue stone mined in the lands of Afghanistan and Pakistan. In its natural state, it is a rich, deep blue with hints of purple and flecks of what look like gold. When it is polished, lapis lazuli becomes a lighter blue, and when it is ground up, it can be used to make the colour ultramarine. In the ancient world, lapis lazuli was incredibly rare, and so rulers from India to Egypt praised this mineral highly. Kara Indash was making a handsome gift with this offering of lapis lazuli. The Egyptians, I'm sure, were very impressed. Unfortunately, not a lot of information survives about the embassy itself. We don't know how many Babylonians there were in the delegation, or how much lapis lazuli they brought, or what their message was, or even whether they met the pharaoh himself. It's entirely possible that they simply met the vizier or a high official. I think we can assume that eventually the Babylonians did meet Tutmos in person, but nothing is certain here. What is certain is that the Babylonian delegation was the beginning of a very interesting couple of years, as first one and then another great kings began to engage directly and diplomatically with the ruler of the Nile Valley. In fact, over the course of two or three years after Regnal Year 33, at least three world powers would make contact with Egypt's kingdom. Shortly after the Babylonian delegation left, a second embassy arrived from the Far East. This was an embassy from the land of Ashur, but you might know it by another name, the Kingdom of Assyria. The Assyrians, or Ashuru to the Egyptians, were anxious to make friends with new powers. They shared a border with the Kingdom of Mitanni, and their own influence had been negatively impacted by the Mitanni warlords. Assyria, in short, was in a period of temporary decline, not quite the power they had once been, nor the power they would be again one day. At the time of Thutmose III, the king of Assyria may have been named Enlil Nasir. Unfortunately, matching the chronologies of Egypt and the Near East is a headache at the best of times, and these are far from the best of times. I'm going with Enlil Nasir, but I could very easily be wrong. It all depends on the dates. Anyway, the Assyrian delegation arrived in Tutmose's court before the end of Regnal Year 33, and they brought with them a very nice gift. Like the Babylonians, they carried a gift of lapis lazuli, but there was more. 
On top of the lapis lazuli, Enlil Nasir sent a number of vessels. These could either be vases, jugs, drinking vessels, or something of that nature. Either way, they were probably high-quality ceramics, likely decorated in beautiful patterns, well-made, fine quality, that sort of thing. These were a token of the king's friendship, a mark of his esteem, and a timely reminder to the Egyptians that they were not the only ones dealing with the Mitanni kingdom. Of course, there's still a lot missing from the record. We don't know how many Asheru there were, or exactly when they came, the month or the day. We don't know whether they visited Egypt itself, or whether they came upon the Egyptian army while it was in Syria or Lebanon. We still don't know whether they met Tutmos himself, so it's kind of like the Babylonian situation. We just have the general record that the Asheru visited the king of Egypt and they gave him these gifts. Beyond that, we don't know. Anyways, on with the story. The Assyrian delegation came once in Regnal year 33, and then again several years later. Over time, and I'm jumping ahead slightly, Assyria and Egypt would actually form a loose alliance, working together against the power of the Mitanni kingdom. In other words, Egypt was now starting to acquire some valuable contacts from powers far from its lands. Powers that could aid in the ongoing game of international competition. Pretty cool! The third great power to visit Egypt was one who are going to loom large in our story over the next few centuries. This was a kingdom located far to the north of Egypt, beyond the lands of Canaan and Syria, beyond the Euphrates and the Taurus Mountains, a kingdom in the heartlands of Anatolia, a kingdom called Hatti. Hatti is the home of the Hittites, an incredibly significant ancient people who now enter our story for the very first time. Before the Hittite delegation arrived in Egypt, there are no surviving references to this kingdom, or to these people. So when they arrived at the palace of Tutmos III, it is possible that the Egyptians had never met Hittites before. The Hittites arrived in Egypt early in Regnal year 34, carrying with them diplomatic gifts, just like their counterparts in Assyria and Babylon. However, compared to the gifts of Babylon and Ashur, these were splendid gifts indeed. The Hittite delegation brought unique objects, silver, high-quality wood, and even gemstones. Perhaps none of these were as exotic as lapis lazuli, but they were far more valuable as a message of goodwill. The value of these items was clear and obvious to the Egyptians, and they prized high-quality wood and silver very much. This suggested one thing above all. The king of the Hittites was very interested in gaining Tutmose's friendship. The king of the Hittites at this time was possibly named Hantili. There is not much to know about him historically, at least nothing that was interesting to the Egyptians. So I will avoid describing the Hittites in too much detail here today. I'm going to introduce them more when they enter our story for real, when they start to make a serious impact on affairs. Suffice to say, the Hittites are a fascinating people, and I'm excited to introduce them today. They're going to play a larger and larger role in the story of Egypt's empire. There will be wars, negotiations, treaties, assassinations, and even plagues. At times, they will be Egypt's friends. At other times, they will be enemies. The stories which come out of the relationship between Egypt and the Hittites are fascinating, like biblical-level stuff. All of that 
begins here with the gift from Han Tili to Tutmos III. Thank you, Han Tili. The diplomatic embassies that came to Tutmos III were an incredibly important event. Important enough that Tutmos had these embassies recorded in royal inscriptions. That's not something you do lightly, so it seems that the Egyptians regarded this as a significant moment, both in their king's reign and their history more generally. Without overstating the importance, I think we can see these embassies as the moment when Egypt was formally recognised by other major kingdoms as belonging to the club of great powers. Until now, Egypt's influence over the Near East had been limited. They had traded extensively and waged the occasional campaign. But only Tutmos III had pursued a long-lasting plan of conquest. Only he had truly pursued an empire. It was Tutmos III that changed Canaan and Syria, turning them into subjugated vassals of the Nile Valley. Before him, campaigns were sporadic. During his reign, and later, campaigns became almost annual. Egyptian soldiers became a regular sight in the region, and royal officials became a part of the Near Eastern political landscape. It seems only natural to me that this should be the moment when great kingdoms like Assyria, Babylon, and Hatti should get in touch with the Egyptians. Tutmosis' consistent, accomplished campaigning paid dividends, not just in victories or plunder and tribute, but in diplomatic visibility. Egypt was rising quickly, moving away from its traditional focus on the Nile Valley. Now it was entering into a new world and gaining a new status, the status of great power. Of course, for those little powers, those small kingdoms, watching all of this going on, there was really only two options, submit or die. Let's take a look at how a few of these little princes adapted to the new situation. To explore the new international status of Egypt, I'm going to focus down on one very curious case that crops up in this period. It is an unprecedented situation as far as we can prove, and it hints at a rich and complex world of which we only have a glimpse today. In order to introduce it, I have to explain how we found out about it. So I'm going to recount a story. Quote, a year or two before the First World War, local Egyptians living in Thebes used to go looking for antiquities on the western side of the river. In 1916, a violent rainstorm came in the Luxor district about the end of July, and when it was over, a gang of Arabs from a nearby village went up into the mountains looking for what might have been disclosed by the floods. In one place, water was still cascading down the cliffs and disappearing into a gigantic crack high up among the crags, and then it came pouring out over forty yards away. To see where the water had been, the Arabs had to get into the crevice, and a rope was lowered into the gloomy depths below. Of course, everything had to be done in absolute secrecy, but the result of all their labours far surpassed any dream that the gang could have had. Before the middle of August, it was pretty generally known throughout the village and Luxor 
that an extraordinary treasure had been found, and even the name of the dealer who had bought it was no secret to the gossips of the neighbourhood. Among the members of the gang of tomb robbers was the curious little old Muhammad Hamad, who worked for us after the war. And his story was that a few days after the tomb had been found, he and the rest of the thieves had already divided the hoard of coins which they had got from the dealer to whom they had sold the treasure. Naturally enough, Muhammad's first thought was for a brand new wife. The one he chose was his junior by a good many years, and like thousands of upper Egyptian girls, she was as straight as an arrow and had eyes that looked over the corner of her head shawl with an unmistakable invitation. After the wedding, Muhammad and all his friends, and they had suddenly become positively legion, settled into the thoroughly enjoyable pastime of watching those seemingly uncountable piles of round, golden coins roll after each other downhill into the pockets of the shopkeepers. Then, early one hot summer morning, somebody spied a crowd of village guards and policemen coming straight along the road from Luxor. Muhammad and his young wife were wide awake in an instant, scared almost to death about the gold which had to be got out of the house as quickly as possible. It was dug up from the dirt and mess in the corner, and stuffed in a basket. A heap of corn was poured on top of it, and off down the steep hill went the wife, balancing the basket on her head. In among the houses which clung to the slope she went, passing one policeman toiling up the hill, and dropping the corner of her shawl just a little while she smiled at him. Below, a couple of the village guards exchanged some joke with her, and then, as she was almost clear and safety was just around the corner, one last guard came climbing up the hill towards her. He too came from the village, and he had often been the butt of all sorts of jokes by the village girls. He gave a nasty chuckle, and made a pass at the burden on her head with his guard's club. There was a smacking sound as he hit the basket squarely, there was a shriek from the girl, and downhill rolled the basket, spilling out in one wildly confused stream yellow corn and yellow golden coins. Everything ended in a frantic gold rush. Policemen, village guards, and all the good people of the area were a mad, biting, scratching tangle. When it was all over, everyone from the police captain on down was exhausted, and they all filed home, except for Muhammad and a few others, who were taken to Luxor for further questioning. Of this questioning, nothing ever came, and in the end, all of the thieves were released, with no one the loser, except poor old Muhammad and his lost gold. We may take the story told about Muhammad Hamad as typical of that of all the tomb robbers. They had been careful not to carry any dirt outside the tomb, for fear that it might be seen. They got what they could by turning over every basketful inside. Everything had immediately been sold, and the treasure was out of their hands before the police got wind of the affair. However, it was rumoured at the time of the discovery that the heavier stone vases and canopic jars had been buried near the site until there should be a good opportunity to move them, and this tale started a second rush to the mountain. Apparently, interlopers found many of the vessels buried by the first thieves, and took them into the village where they were hidden once more. But that was not all. In the curious way things happen in Egypt, everybody except the inspectors of the service of antiquities knew all about this tomb, and everybody was pretty certain who had bought its contents from the robbers. But no official 
ever learned his name for sure. End quote. I love this story, and I hope you'll forgive me for taking the time to recount it. It comes from a wonderful publication by Egyptologist Herbert Winlock. He recounted this in 1948 as part of his detailed examination of the items that came from this hidden tomb. These items mostly found their way via dealers to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. There, the items remain to this day, and they give us a glimpse at the unorthodox recovery of some wonderful ancient treasures. The treasures taken from this tomb were the treasures of three Egyptian princesses. These princesses were secondary wives of Pharaoh Thutmose III, and thanks to these unusual events, we now know a surprising amount about these women. Our three princesses were buried together in the same tomb with a whole host of jewellery and funerary objects. Canopic jars? Check. Mummy coverings? Check. Named objects? Check. Mummies? Well, unfortunately not, but we still have a lot of material to reference. Thankfully, Egyptologists have done the hard work, and now we can say a few things about these mysterious women. The names of these three princesses were Menuai, Manhata, and Meruta. They were buried in Thebes sometime before Regnal Year 42 of Thutmose III. This doesn't tell us a lot about their historical importance, obviously. Were these honoured wives or captives in all but name? It's kinda hard to say. But it is clear that Manuwai, Manhata, and Maruta went to the afterlife in some style. Their bodies were covered in golden jewellery, eagerly collected by those robbers. They had rings, necklaces, and collars, wig decorations, gold and silver mirrors, sandals, toes and figure sheaths, heart scarabs, amulets, beads and pendants, ointment jars, canopic jars, stone vessels, and all kinds of miscellaneous pieces that went into the assemblage. In short, these three women were entombed in a very respectable manner. Such a lavish burial begs the question, what was so special about these foreign women? Why did they get a funeral of such magnificence? There were plenty of royal women around at this time. What set these three apart? The key is in their names. Manuwai, Manhata, and Meruta are not Egyptian names. Their exact origin is unconfirmed, but it is 90% likely that these are Syrian or Semitic names. Meruta, for instance, could be a precursor to the Hebrew word Marta, which became our Martha. Manuwai, possibly Menwi, could also be Hebrew in root, or it could be Syrian Semitic. Finally, Manhata is possibly from the Hebrew Nuer, or Exalted, from which we, incidentally, also get the name Noah. Now, I'm no philologist, and I'm working on the research of more experienced scholars. But it seems awfully convenient that a trio of Syrian-esque women show up in a royal context sometime in the middle of Thutmose III's reign. We don't know exactly when they were buried, there's a 20-year span of possible dates, but it is clear that it was sometime after Megiddo and sometime before Thutmose finished his campaigning. The woman probably lived at Memphis, in the royal harem which we know existed there. You can learn about this harem back in episode 65c. The princess's life in Memphis would have been sheltered from 99% of the population, 
It was a life taking place among the halls, gardens, and apartments of the royal palaces. Memphis, one of the major royal residences, was home to a huge government community. Overseers, high officials, bureaucrats, etc. gathered in this area to manage the affairs of the country, especially the north. Many of those officials would be working on affairs to do with the lands of Canaan and Syria. Likewise, many of the servants at Memphis probably came as well-respected captives from those lands. Manuwai, Manhata, and Meruta probably came to the Egyptian court as a form of diplomatic gift. We know that at least one Syrian lord sent his daughter to Egypt in regnal year 40. The chief sent his daughter as a inu, which we translate as gift, to the court of the pharaoh. It was a token of goodwill, an offering of loyalty, and a way to cement relations with the great king of the Nile Valley. Now I am willing to bet good money that Manuwai, Manhata, and Meruta came to Egypt as diplomatic gifts, as Inu. Admittedly, I wouldn't stake my academic reputation on this, but I would bet you, say, $10. Why do I think this? Well, the unique burial of these women suggests some things very clearly. Firstly, they were obviously honoured or respectable in some way, so that suggests that they weren't captives. Secondly, they were given the title Hemet Nesut, or Wife of the King. Again, not something you'd normally do for women taken as booty in war. You'd just make them concubines. Thirdly, their burial in Thebes, near the royal cemeteries, means that they were given privileged status. Very few royal wives received this treatment, relatively speaking. Put those facts together, with their vaguely Syrian names, and the period in which they show up, after Tutmos had established Egypt as a power in Syria, but before he finished his campaigns, and the evidence, to me, suggests that these women were sent voluntarily to Egypt. They were probably diplomatic gifts from Syrian rulers to their overlord, the king of Egypt. It is possible they were sent as a form of insurance for good behaviour. You have my daughter, and don't invade me. They are also quite likely the first such woman to arrive in Egypt for this purpose. There are hints of other princesses from foreign lands, like a Cretan princess who might have come from the Minoan peoples, but only Manuwai, Manhata, and Maruta are definitive, proven. With that in mind, I think we can afford them the signal honour of being the first diplomatic marriages in Egyptian history. Please, welcome our new foreign ladies. So it seems like so far everything is just going swimmingly for Egypt. Three great kingdoms have got in touch with the pharaoh, openly acknowledging that he is now one of the great rulers of the world, and that Egypt has become a great power with influence worthy of recognition and respect. On top of that, we have small kingdoms and principalities in Syria giving their daughters to the king of Egypt just to secure his goodwill and perhaps his protection. In other words, Egypt is sitting very pretty. It's forming alliances, making loose friendships, receiving gifts, getting tribute, and basically profiting in every way it's possible to do at this point in history. Of course, 
not everyone was too happy about what Tutmos had been doing. No one was less happy about this than the Mitanni. They were not out of the picture just yet, and they were getting ready to strike back. After his bold campaign in Regnal Year 33, Tutmos enjoyed about 12 or 18 months of calm and peace. The king received those diplomatic embassies, and then he set out on a short campaign into southern Syria. That was a quiet campaign, more of a policing action than anything else. But peace could not last forever. About 18 months after Tutmos's surprise attack on their kingdom, the rulers of Mitanni were ready to launch a counterattack. Now that they had recovered, they could look at reasserting their authority and their influence over Syria. This was authority that Tutmos had battered very strongly, and they were not going to take that lying down. The Mitanni were in no position to attack Egypt itself, of course. It was too far away, and there were too many garrisons and small kingdoms in their way. But the Mitanni warlords could still give Tutmos an almighty headache. Left unchecked, they threatened the balance of power in Syria and Canaan. With luck, they could easily undo all of the victories that Tutmos had spent ten years achieving. So the Mitanni warlords, possibly led by their king, gathered in the heartlands of northern Mesopotamia. Their chariot elites, the Marianu, were the formidable wing of their army, heavily armed and armoured, swift and deadly. They were backed up by armoured swordsmen, lightly armed spearmen, and a great many archers. Together, these forces could lay waste to towns and hinterlands, and place fortified cities under incredibly powerful sieges. The Mitanni had gathered a true strike force. Surprisingly, it seems that Tutmos was entirely unaware of his enemy's plans. At the start of Regnal Year 35, he began yet another campaign into Syria. This would be his tenth campaign, and it began like any other. He sailed out of the Nile Delta in blissful ignorance, heading for Byblos. The king took with him a modest army, and behaved as though this was essentially business as usual. Unfortunately, he was about to get a rude awakening. Tutmos and his army proceeded, as normal, into Lebanon and Syria. The Egyptians visited their local vassals and took their obligatory tribute, their Baku. If the towns failed to comply, or gasp, tried to resist, then the Egyptians made short work of them. This campaign was straightforward, and the Egyptians might be forgiven for being slightly complacent. However, this was a bad state to be in. They were now open to surprise. The king and his army carried on into central Syria. They approached the town of Aleppo, which they had visited back in the Euphrates campaign. Aleppo, one of the world's oldest inhabited cities, does not figure much in our stories yet, but the countryside around Aleppo continues to be a strategic highway, and more than one significant battle will take place here. Near Aleppo, Tutmos and his army came to a town called Aruna. At Aruna, they received an unwelcome surprise. Tutmos's scouts returned one day with alarming news. Their way, up ahead, was blocked. Not by a local army or any kind of police force or brigands. This was a formidable force, a force of the Mitanni kingdom. Tutmos was worried. Their enemy had snuck a march on them and appeared in Syria without their knowledge. Battle, it seemed, was imminent. 
the call went out, to arms, to arms. Tutmose's army was drawn unexpectedly and almost without preparation into direct conflict with the Mitanni army. It wasn't an ambush per se, more of an unexpected obstacle. Quote, that vile doomed one of Naharin, the Mitanni, had collected horses with their people and their armies which stretched to the ends of the earth. They were more numerous than the sands on the seashore. They were intent on fighting with his majesty. End quote. The Egyptians perhaps had not expected the Mitanni to prepare a counterattack so soon, or at least not to show up at the exact moment that they were here. The situation had all the potential to be a catastrophe. In such circumstances, Tutmos had two options. He could retreat back to safety, or he could attack. Now, after all we've learned about him, which one do you think he chose? Quote, Then his majesty closed with them, and the army of his majesty performed the charging maneuver with the cry, Let's get them! Then his majesty overpowered these foreigners through the power of his father Amun-Re and he made a great slaughter among those doomed ones of Naharin. They proceeded to flee, stumbling one upon the other, in front of his majesty. End quote. I have to say before I give you commentary on this, the annals of Tutmose III may be some of my favourite literature from ancient Egypt, not necessarily because they're particularly beautiful linguistically or even that well written, but because he includes these little moments of speech and yelling that really flavour up the narrative, you don't tend to get these in earlier records, and Tutmos seems to show a flair for the dramatic. I mean, the idea of the soldiers charging forward crying, let's get them! That's remarkable. You just don't get that normally. I absolutely love it. And I almost like to imagine Tutmose trying to dictate this to his scribes, waving a sword around and saying, And then I went left, and the chariots came towards me, but my might was too great. And he's getting all excited, and the scribes are desperately trying to take it down as quickly as they can, and then it just winds up in this short little paragraph on the wall that gives you the slightest hint of how Tutmose was probably a little bit of a storyteller. Anyway, Despite what Tutmos tells you, this battle was probably not a victory. But nor was it a defeat. It seems like the Egyptians and the Mitanni fought each other to a standstill, a stalemate. Then both sides withdrew back to their respective territories and no further engagement occurred. The Battle of Year 35, whatever you want to call it, was perhaps the first great battle that Tutmos had fought since his Megiddo campaign a full 13 years before. Back then, he'd been about 24, 25, young and vigorous, full of power. Now, he was 37 or 38, middle-aged and probably slowing down. Did that play a part? Well, it doesn't seem to. Tutmose still went into battle audaciously and aggressively. He wasn't any more timid than before. I think, ultimately, what happened here was that the Egyptians and the Mitanni found themselves pretty much equals in combat. Neither side in this battle had a clear advantage. Neither one was necessarily expecting a pitched battle. All things considered, the Mitanni might have been just as surprised by the Egyptians as the Egyptians were by the Mitanni. It was an unpredicted and unplanned battle. That neither side emerged as a clear victor was simply because neither side was noticeably better than the other. 
Returning to Byblos, Tutmos now found himself cautious. Any attempt to push further into Syria would now have to reckon with a powerful and well-organised foe. A foe capable of meeting the Egyptians in open battle and holding their own. It was not a defeat, but nor was it a victory. The Mitanni had now proved their mettle. The Egyptians were no longer the unstoppable force they had seemed just a couple years ago. Now, Tatmos was at a crossroads. Looking back, it seems like he was faced with two options. On the one hand, Tutmos could continue to push against the Mitanni aggressively, fielding army after army and venturing out year after year. This had the advantage of bringing plunder, but it would also be costly and it would drag the pharaoh into repeated battles and encounters. At the age of 36 plus, well into middle age for his day, Tutmos probably didn't relish that option all that much. Still, the Egyptians had held their own against the Mitanni, and despite being unprepared for the battle in Syria, they had emerged at least relatively unscathed. Perhaps the Mitanni would back off again, and the Egyptians could seize an advantage over the Syrian heartlands. It was worth considering. On the other hand, this stalemate did represent a unique opportunity. With a little finesse and careful planning, the Egyptians could very well use the situation to buy some time. For the last ten years, they had been steadily expanding their authority over new cities and peoples. If Tutmos could attain a peace, that might buy some time to consolidate that authority and secure his empire more completely. In other words, this stalemate with the Mitanni might conceivably turn into a lasting peace, and each kingdom could now have an accepted and recognised sphere of influence. Achieving that was going to be a bit more difficult than might be expected. On the next episode, we will continue with the second half of Tutmose's grand campaigns and political achievements. We will cover this story in one blitz, from Regnal Year 35 down to Regnal Year 44, and then, at last, we will be done with the wars and victories of the Great King. Then it will be time to turn to some other, more intimate and local stories once more. Join us soon for episode 74, War Stories also known as Rulers of the Empire. My apologies to listeners for the slight delay on this episode. There were two reasons for this. First of all, I was moving house, and the shift crept up on me faster than I was anticipating. That left a little less time for editing the audio than I had anticipated, and I did not want to put out an inferior product. Second of all, the story of the discovery of the three princesses cropped up very late in the recording phase, and I actually reconfigured the episode somewhat to accommodate it. I think it just added that little bit of extra flavour, and I really wanted to see how that story played out. I hope you'll forgive the wait. I think it was worth it, right? A final editorial note. In the first part of this episode, I said that Egypt was now moving from being a local power to what might be called a great power. Well, that is a specific political term, and for those of you who aren't weirdly obsessive about history like me, that might do with a note of explanation. 
For those unfamiliar, a great power is a state or a country that is able to exert its will over other states and groups, and is able to sustain itself through long periods of struggle and warfare. Obviously, the criteria for great power changes depending on the historical time period and your point of view. Some might say that the USA was a great power during World War I, but others might say that the USA only became a great power in the 1930s, and more specifically in World War II. So your criteria can warp the term a little bit. In the ancient world, a great power might be broadly described as a kingdom that, first of all, ruled over lands and peoples beyond its traditional centre. Secondly, wielded authority or strength that was recognised by other equally powerful states. And finally, a kingdom that could support and pursue military activities for an extended period of time. Pulling off all three of those feats is harder than you might expect. Well, the Egyptians were starting to achieve it. Obviously, these are just some very general criteria, but I think you get the point. So now, at the end of episode 73, we can say that Egypt has gone from being a regional power along the Nile to a power that was internationally recognised, respected, and in some cases, feared. We'll find out why over the coming episodes. See you soon!